Welcome to the Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights' podcast. I'm Shana Kanadal, an attorney at the Center, and I'm here um, with our special guest, Ramzi Kassem, professor of law at CUNY Law School in New York and director of CUNY's CLEAR project. CLEAR stands for Creating Law Enforcement Accountability and Responsibility. And the topic of today's podcast is our recent Supreme Court argument in our no-fly this case. Tanvir versus Tanzan. More at the court, I suppose. Tanzan versus Tanvir. This is a case that was just argued on October 6th by Professor Kassem. He and I have been co-counsel on this case since, I guess, around 2013 when we started it. So a lot to talk about and welcome, Ramsey. Thank you so much, Shane. Uh, Pleasure to be here with you. Let's start by talking about what happened to our clients. So our clients are four American Muslim men. I believe at the time the case was filed, three were green card holders and one was a citizen, but they all had something unfortunate in common. They were all placed or kept on the no-fly list in order to coerce them to serve as the eyes and ears of law enforcement inside the Muslim community, to eavesdrop on the Muslim community writ large. Two of them found out that they were on the no-fly list by going to the airport and not being able to board flights, and then were essentially immediately approached by the FBI and asked to spy in their communities. Two had the opposite chronology. They were approached, asked to eavesdrop on their communities, declined, and then found themselves unable to fly. And in all four cases, our guys were told, we can get you off if you agree to work for us as spies on your community. I guess, Ramsey, the thing that I found maybe most surprising about these facts when they when they came to our attention was that you know, our clients weren't asked to serve as quote-unquote informers for the FBI because the FBI thought they or their friends or their family or even anybody specific in their community was up to no good. Instead, it was just kind of generalized eavesdropping on the Muslim community that the FBI agents were after. They wanted spies in the most general sense. And I guess I'm curious, you all at CLEAR do a lot more work with the community and a lot more work with folks who are asked to serve in this kind of capacity for the government. And I'm curious for your perspectives about, you know, how commonplace this kind of diffuse information gathering project really is. Well, I'll tell you, Shane, that when we go into community spaces like mosques or youth centers or schools or movement and organizing spaces that are concerned with issues affecting Muslim-identified communities or issues of surveillance, and and we do that at CLEAR, be it the attorneys or our law students, you know, we're in these spaces sometimes on a weekly basis. A lot of times we'll ask, say, the folks that are gathered at a mosque, How many of them have either had the FBI approach them directly to try to question them about their political or religious views, or if they know people to whom that's happened? And in those spaces, in in Muslim-identified spaces, it is very common for almost all of the hands in the room to go up. That's how widespread of an experience that is in these communities, And, and it tells you something about the color of surveillance, right? Because when we're in spaces that are not populated by Muslim-identified people or people of color that are deemed suspect by the, you know, federal quote-unquote security apparatus, you know, it's a really rare experience. And the assumption is that if that sort of thing happens, there has to be a reason, right, going back to one of your points. Uh, But in our experience, it's clear, you know, this sort of fishing expedition is very common in so-called communities of interest that happen to be Muslim-identified communities 
And, and, you know, increasingly other communities that we work with are clear organizations and activists within the movement for black lives ecosystem, for example. And what the, what the FBI is really doing is just a fishing expedition. I mean, that's how we think of it as clear. The FBI might call it something along the lines of intelligence gathering. But as you mentioned, it's completely unmoored from any suspicion of consummated criminal activity or even like some concrete suspicion that planning for a specific criminal act may be afoot. It's not about that at all. It's really more about, you know, human mapping and ideological mapping and figuring out what people are thinking about and what they're saying. And it happens in a number of guises, sort of the way that our clients were approached to become informants. Uh, so unbeknownst to somebody in a space like that, there might be an informant listening and reporting on what's being said or what's, you know, what people are talking about or excited about. Sometimes it happens in more overt ways, right, with the FBI knocking at people's doorsteps and asking them, you know, ridiculous questions like, you know, what do they think about the war in Afghanistan or what do they think about the war in Syria or even silly questions meant to gauge people's loyalty to the United States. We had one client that was asked by an FBI agent who showed up at his home who would win and who would he be rooting for if the United States played Pakistan in cricket. <laughs> and, then, and of course, we all know the answer to that, at least the who would win part. But, you know, the fact that these are the sorts of things that are happening in these communities, and it's extremely widespread. And, you know, it's the translation of an incentive structure, you know, these agents, whether or not they've drunk the Kool-Aid and whether or not they subscribe to this project, have to recruit quote unquote sources in order to be promoted, essentially. That's how the incentives are structured. Yeah, that's an amazing visual image, just every single hand in the room going up. And I suppose if I were sitting in a room like that, the first thing I might think is that, you know, well, this is a little bit akin to kind of, you know, the mentality of the government folks creating the electronic surveillance programs, that it's just like what Edward Snowden revealed, they're trying to gather everything and figure out later what they might conceivably ever do with it, right? Because it's so much information that it seems on the face of it that it would be useless. But I guess the second thing that occurred to me is that it's got to be extraordinarily intimidating. I mean, I, I can't imagine that seeing all the arms go up, all the hands go up in a room like that, it doesn't make most of the people in the room think, well, somebody in this room, in fact, probably has agreed to report on everything that's being said here. Yeah, absolutely. And in that sense, you know, it's a win-win for an agency like the FBI, because, you know, one of the goals, of course, is information collection and just general information collection, again, like human and ideological mapping. But a subsidiary goal that isn't too far behind is disruption. And, and again, that didn't start with 9-11, obviously. And we all know about COINTELPRO, which sent the FBI and other agencies, including the NYPD, into organizations like the Black Panthers, civil rights groups, with similar goals of so-called intelligence collection and disruption as well. And so the getting an informant in there is helpful, but the suspicion, the widespread suspicion in these communities that are being targeted in these spaces that are being targeted that there might be informants is also helpful in the sense that it promotes the objective of disruption and paranoia. And so for organizations like ours, like CLEAR, like the Center for Constitutional Rights that are standing with targeted communities and movements, you really have to strike a balance between raising awareness of the real risk, but without crossing that line into doing the FBI's work for them by discouraging folks from organizing and exercising their rights and speaking out. So you really have to be very conscientious and cautious about striking that delicate balance between not being blind to the risk, but also not overstating it or presenting it in a way that 
you know, sows fear and paranoia and furthers that objective of disruption. But the FBI was pretty explicit about it, at least internally, with COINTELPRO and, and, you know, in this current historical moment as well. Yeah, and disruption obviously can be disruption of political organizing to scale back the scope of FBI activities, right? Um, exactly. It can, be, it can have the effect of undermining the very political check that is supposed to happen. It's like disenfranchising, you know, people for violating the drug laws when one of the things those people might vote against is the drug laws themselves. You know, so it's interesting. I mean, when this case started, when we started researching it and hearing about it, I guess, back around seven years ago, I honestly was not 100% convinced the no-fly list existed. I thought it might be, in fact, one of these kind of mythological things that was out there to kind of intimidate people, right? But it, in fact, does exist, and it's kind of perfect for this sort of coercion that our, our clients experienced, right? Because back when we started the case, there was really no transparency about it. Everything about it was secret, including the fact that you were on the list. So the government wouldn't ever tell you or confirm whether you were on or off. People would find out typically from airline employees. You know, you wouldn't be allowed to board, and somebody sympathetic behind the counter would say, oh, well, the reason we can't give you your boarding pass is that you're on the no-fly list, right? What little we know about it, I feel like, in detail has come from one mammoth document that was leaked by The Intercept, a 190-page guide to watch listing generally. It doesn't you know, tell us a whole lot that's useful about the vetting that goes into the list, but it does give us a very good sense that the individual FBI agents may have the power to put people on the list without very much review, and that the basis for inclusion is extraordinarily broad. Whether or not one poses a threat to commit an act of terrorism doesn't need to be related to an aircraft. And, you know, essentially that's kind of a future crime concept there, the idea of somebody having the potential to carry out an act of terrorism. The evidence, evidentiary guidelines that are in that leaked document talk about how, you know, an agent only needs an articulable and reasonable basis for suspicion, that mere guesses and hunches aren't enough, but that when reasonable minds can disagree, they should include people on the list, um, and that single source information, including a single social media post, shouldn't automatically be discounted. So you've got a system that's completely clouded in secrecy with no review of what an individual FBI agent does. And criteria for inclusion that are so vague that pretty much anybody could be included. I mean, I think somewhere on the list of inclusion criteria is something like travel to a locus of terrorist activity without defining how small the place has to be. So Pakistan, the entire country, one imagines, could fit. So we don't know very much about, I guess, what went on in terms of the listing of our clients, but it does seem like this system is tailor-made for exactly this kind of abuse. You've got FBI agents who are out there with kind of a management imperative to collect a certain number of sources every month or however it works for them, and they've got all the discretion that they need to include people, and there'll never be any accountability. And so fundamentally, this lawsuit was about accountability. And at the outset, the main goal, I suppose, was to get our guys off the list. The interesting thing about it, I guess, is that once we filed our lawsuit and a number of other lawsuits went forward as well, including one by the ACLU, where about half of the clients had this coercion to become informers pattern to them, the government immediately changed course and said, you know what, we'll create an administrative process where if you're not allowed to board a plane, you can file an administrative complaint, then we'll tell you whether or not you're on this list. 
which was a brand new thing before they wouldn't officially confirm it at all. If you want to challenge your inclusion on the list, you get this very slapdash sort of administrative process where we'll tell you what kind of category of potential terrorist we think you fall into, and you can volunteer information to convince us that you don't belong on it. Now, lucky for us, none of our four clients had to go through that because they were all informed that they should be able to fly now in the middle of the litigation. And I believe, Robsy, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like it was like a little more than a week, maybe less than a week before the first oral argument in the district court that they told us. Yeah, I mean, it was exactly, you know, four days before we were due to go in front of the district court judge on the government's motion to dismiss. And that's when we got the call from the government attorney telling us that our clients were basically all going to be able to fly. And of course, we waited for written confirmation and also, of course, for practical confirmation of our clients actually able to board a flight for the first time in years to see their loved ones. And at that point, uh, agreed to a dismissal of the injunctive claims. We were asking the court to order the government to remove our clients from the list since our clients have been removed from the list. But, but you know, I mean, I, going back to your first point, Shane, about whether the no-fly list was an urban legend, uh, you know, at the time that we filed the original complaint in 2013, I don't think anybody can fault you for sort of having that question on your mind. I mean, on our end, the clear, the only reason, you know, we were convinced that the list existed is because we had seen many of these cases, right? And even like our clients, what became the Tenvir case, had come to us in 2011, and they weren't the only ones, right? And so seeing that pattern repeat with a number of individuals from different communities who didn't know each other convinced us of the existence of this watch list, even though the government, as you said, wouldn't confirm it. And even now, even after these changes that you just described in the wake of the litigation that we brought and other litigations brought, uh, other lawsuits brought by other organizations, even now, you know, you only find out that you're on the little fly list, the hard one. You know, you only find out by trying to take a flight and being denied boarding. That's your first indication. You're not given any kind of prior notice or prior process. You still have to incur a cost of purchasing a plane ticket that might not be refunded, and many of our clients have had to deal with this. You still have to deal with the surprise and shock of your plans being disrupted, especially if, you know, like most of our clients, you know, you're, you're a working class person, tickets don't come cheap. This is your one opportunity to go see your family overseas. You do that once a year and you go and spend a month or two with them. And now all of a sudden, all of your plans are awash because you've been no-fly listed unbeknownst to you. And at that point, you know, if you're a green card holder or a U.S. citizen, you can go submit a letter to the TRIP process, the so-called Travel Redress and Inquiry Program process, and they'll tell you whether or not you're on the no-fly list if you're a U.S. citizen or a green card holder, but not if you're a visa holder or anything else. And, you know, TRIP existed before we brought suit, but it was even more ineffectual than it is today. I mean, it remains ineffectual, but it was even worse back then because you never got confirmation one way or the other. You just got the school Omar-like response of, you know, neither confirm nor deny. And it was ridiculously, absurdly slow, which is what our clients experienced. I mean, before they sued, uh, they had attempted to use the TRIP process as it existed at the time, and they waited for years and never got a meaningful response. I mean, some of them got authentical responses. One of them got no response at all. But magically, once they sued and the TRIP process was revised, they received a response to the TRIP process within a week, which never happened in the absence of litigation pressure. So whatever reforms or tweaking was done with the system was really just to placate the courts and make them go away. Because for clients of ours who are experiencing these issues now, the trip process as it exists today in 2020 is no meaningful remedy. Yeah. 
uh, you know, and it's interesting. I mean, we say, you know, this all happened, you know, that the biggest remedy getting off the list would happen at the beginning of the lawsuit, but it wasn't, you know, at the beginning of the, the problems for our clients, right? I mean, they right. spent years on there. I mean, just two examples of waste of job. One of our plaintiffs had wanted to see his, I think, 92-year-old at the start of the lawsuit grandmother in Pakistan who was right. sick. And had to wait years to do that. Um, Nabeel Chinwari, um, uh, another one of our plaintiffs, had a wife and family in Afghanistan and couldn't go back and see them for years. And right. and Mr. Jamil Jibha also had a spouse and, and they had kids in Yemen and he, he also couldn't go see them and missed out on you know, those years and the lives of his children. Terrible stuff. And obviously we have a donor who you know is a billionaire who filed a lawsuit being on the list where you get extra search scrutiny when you get on the airplane. And the court said, nah, you know, you don't have a remedy because you can take a bus or something like that or a train. <laughs> a completely different story for, for immigrant community folks who, you know, have tons of family overseas. Seats, right, um, and our guys also some of them had to fly for work at long distance trucking where they took the job they need to be able to fly back home at the end of it. Uh, so lots of very tangible harms, and those tangible harms are really kind of what the case was about. After the forward-looking stuff went out of it, after our guys found out they were off the list, it was really about damages for what had happened to them in the past. Don't want to spend a huge amount of time talking about that, but that's the issue that went up to the Supreme Court. Let's talk a little bit about the case that went up to the Supreme Court. So really, at this point, the issue was not necessarily specific to the no-fly list, but really about the question of whether there was any mechanism for accountability for what happened to our clients in the past, any mechanism for getting damages from the government, really, from the individual agents who were responsible for these abuses. And by way of explanation, it's pretty easy to sue for a court order telling the government to do or stop doing something for an injunction when they violate your constitutional rights. All you need there is the constitution in your hand, right? But it's very difficult to sue for money directly under the constitution because of doctrines of sovereign immunity, this long-standing kind of notion that the government can't be sued for money damages in its own courts. Now, Congress provided a statutory means a long time ago to sue states for violations of the federal constitution, but there is no generalized statute that does the equivalent for violations of the Constitution by federal agents. And so the supposedly very liberal Warren Court allowed what's called an implied action directly under the Constitution against individual officers. The modern court kind of disfavors so-called Bivens actions. We had some included in this case at the outset. We lost those claims at the trial court. And so what was left for appeal really was basically a much more rarely used statute that Congress passed to provide a cause of action in cases where government hinges on your religious freedom the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so the question that went to the Supreme Court was, does this act allow for not just injunctive relief, but damages against federal officers? Ramsey, I don't know how much you want to say about this legal issue. I think a relatively technical, narrow question that came out of a much more broad-ranging lawsuit. I think the simplest way to explain it is it's basically about accountability. No, exactly. I think it's important to center here what the driving force was for our client. I mean, of course, damages are important because, you know, they go some distance towards compensating our clients for the concrete injuries that they sustained as a result of what these agents did by listing them. But for our clients, they also matter because they don't want this to happen to others. Uh, And so the deterrent function of damages is important in that regard. But the most central thing for our clients was really the violation of their religious freedom. We were able to translate that into legal claims in a couple of different ways through the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which prohibits the government 
defined to include its officers and agents and officials from substantially burdening someone's religious exercise, defined very broadly, unless they're doing that in the least restrictive way in furtherance of a compelling government interest. So there was that claim. And then there was the First Amendment free exercise claim through Bivens. So those are the translations of the motivating sentiment and really the core injury for our clients. And, and this is no small thing, I think, not just for them, but for you know, observant Muslims nationwide and worldwide. The prohibition on spying on innocent fellow Muslims could not be more clear. It is provided textually in the Quran, which to observe a Muslims is literally the word of God. It's chapter 49, verse 12. It says very clearly, do not spy on each other. It's been interpreted consistently by the crushing majority of Islamic scholars, be they Sunni or Shia or of, of any other school of Islamic thought. It's been interpreted to prohibit spying on innocent fellow Muslims. And really, the only debate about it within that religious community is whether spying on an innocent fellow Muslim constitutes apostasy. And that's how serious it is. I, I was asked during one of the moots whether this was as serious as not wearing a headscarf, a hijab. And there is no clear indication textually in the Quran with respect to the hijab in the way that there is with respect to spying. So again, you know, a Muslim woman can make a decision whether or not to wear a hijab. But in this instance, the only debate among mainstream scholars is whether or not it constitutes apostasy. And I'm spending time on this because I want to sort of highlight the weight of this decision for our clients, all of whom were observant Muslims, with the exception of Mr. Owais Sajjad, who dropped out of the case after he was delisted, precisely because he never made a, a refer allegation. His reasons for refusing to spy were rooted in his own personal views, but not religious views. But for our three remaining clients, all of whom were observant Muslims, all of whom were approached because they were perceived as observant Muslims, all of whom were asked to behave in Islamic spaces, their faith communities, in ways in which they wouldn't have otherwise behaved, right? Um, and in ways that would have violated the central tenet of their religion, that would have exposed them to the possibility of being outsiders to their community, like apostasy, which is what we were talking about. That's how heavy this was for them. That's, that's how much of a burden on their religious exercise it was. Not that the law requires it to be a, a central or fundamental tenet. It only requires it to be a sincere belief, which obviously it was. But I wanted to stop there and highlight that, because from their perspective, this was an untenable, an extremely difficult position to be in, where they were told you can either violate your religion and potentially be considered someone who has rejected their faith, which was centrally important to their life, in order to go see your family, or you can give up on seeing your family and on pursuing these uh, employment and educational opportunities, but, you know, stick to your faith. And they made the difficult decision of standing by their faith at that price of not seeing their loved ones because it was that important to them. Among the many somewhat outrageous arguments the government has made along the way in this case, one of them that's always struck me as particularly outrageous is the notion that somehow the agents didn't know that what they were doing would have an impact on the free exercise of religion yeah. of our yeah. clients, right? I mean, yeah. it's so obvious. They're asking you to go into a religious community, into mosques, into a space where everybody is presumptively an adherent, right? It's a perfectly reasonable yeah. thing to presume that everyone is there for a legitimate religious purpose and instead to be there yeah. as, you know, an agent of law enforcement. It's yeah. absurdity. Especially then if you sort of like add to that picture the reality that these are agents out of the New York City Joint Terrorism Task Force 
you know, who are focusing exclusively on Muslim identified communities. Uh, right. So it becomes highly implausible that these agents whose day to day work has to do with targeting this community, recruiting informants in this specific faith community. Uh, it becomes highly implausible to think that they wouldn't know about a Quranic prohibition on specifically the sort of thing that they spend most of their days doing in that community. Right. It's just it's just completely implausible because they would know by virtue of their training by dint of their day-to-day experience dealing with Muslims and trying to recruit them to become informants and spies, that literally has to come up. It's almost as though their job was to sort of go into Muslim communities and try to hand out ham sandwiches and then later turn around and express surprise at the fact that there were no takers in, in these observant Muslim or Jewish communities when it came to the ham sandwiches. It's that sort of thing. Like It must have come up. They must have been aware of it. And frankly, in the end, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not require them to know. The law prohibits substantial burdens, not intentional burdens. So, you know, even in the highly unlikely event that, you know, these agents simply did not know what they were doing, despite everything you said and and I added, Shane, Mm -hmm. uh, still, there is a substantial burden on religious exercise, and that's really all that matters under that law. I mean, yeah, one would have to presume that they were really terrible at their presumptive job of intelligence gathering, right, in order to have that level of ignorance. It kind of parallels another qualified immunity argument the government made, which is that, you know, we somehow didn't allege that every single agent knew what every other agent was up to in terms of their kind of illicit motives here. But, you know, qualified immunity, again, another very obscure legal term that I think has kind of rushed into public consciousness with the police accountability protests and movement across the country. And that, I guess, is is potentially a major issue if we do win. But I thought it might be nice to end on two things. One, to talk a little bit about what it's meant for our clients to have kind of taken up the baton and fought for this issue. I mean, as I recall it, you know, one of the things that our guys said to us was that once it became known in the community that they had been targeted in this way, you know, both an attempt to recruit them as informers and also putting them on the no-fly list, that there was a certain stigma that kind of radiated out from that and that that itself was very difficult. Kind of talk a little bit about that and maybe about a little bit of the redemptive power, as it were, of choosing to fight the government in court and in the public arena. Yeah, I mean, I think for for our clients, you know, all along, when I talked to them back in November of last year when cert was granted, when I spoke with them again the weekend before argument, and when I spoke with them following the argument, on all three occasions, you know, all three of our clients have been remarkably consistent that, you know, for them, you know, this is about how their religious freedom was violated and how they did not want what happened to them to happen to others, whether they're Muslims or or believers of other faiths or non-believers, the most important thing for them was for that message to get out there, that this thing had happened to them and that they had done everything they could to ensure that it wouldn't happen to others. You know, from that vantage point, they've all been very pleased with the way, you know, the litigation has gone and the way, like, we've participated in that litigation with them from, from our organizations at TCR, CLEAR, Debevoise, because they feel like their goals with this have been advanced. And again, not that not that damages are unimportant to them. You know, they're all working class folks. And of course, they sustained real harms, including emotional and economic harms. But there was a larger sense of the importance of, you know, getting the message out there and doing what they could to minimize the, the chance that this would happen to others. And they feel like they've done that. And I'm just grateful that we were able to support them in doing that because it wasn't an easy decision, as, as you suggested, Shane. There were consequences for them 
at least earlier in terms of, you know, how people viewed them initially back in, you know, 2013, 2014, when it became publicly known or earlier when it started getting known through social circles that they had been targeted in this way. And so because the government really relies on secrecy and stigma, our own counter strategy, like our clients and the counter strategy of the communities and movements that we work with has to rest on the polar opposite, right? It has to rest on transparency and shedding light. And I think that was effective in this case. I think they were able to, you know, turn the table. They were able to achieve one of their main objectives very early on in the course of this litigation, which is getting off the list so that they could, you know, continue with their family lives and their work lives. And then they were able to push back and send out an affirmative message into the world. Yeah. And I think nothing better for that than to win at the Supreme Court, even if it is on a very technical issue about the application of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So, Ramzi, you and I have had the experience of working on uh, a very long-lasting litigation, the Guantanamo litigation, where positive Supreme Court decisions ended up having tremendous kind of effect in terms of kind of removing a lot of the stigma around um, some of our clients. But the reason I mention it is that I know that you're one of the few counsel who wears a suit to meet with clients down there. And my understanding is that you have one suit, which from years of travel to Gitmo pretty much has seen its best days behind it. I know you and I talked about potentially buying a top coat with tails for the Supreme Court argument if we did it in person. But of course, at the last minute, the court canceled the live argument in, in light of the pandemic and switched to a telephonic argument in October. So I want to ask what you wore for the argument. Yeah, I mean, look, as far as my Guantanamo suits go, I might be on Gitmo suit 3.0 or 4.0 at this point after, you know, all these years of doing that work since, uh, I guess, 2005, 2006. You know, with the Supreme Court, uh, of course, you know, if it had been in the courtroom on their turf, so to speak, we would have all adhered to the court's rules. And the court has very specific rules about how lawyers should dress down to the color of the suit that an attorney arguing before the Supreme Court in the courthouse in D.C. at the Supreme Court, the colors that you're supposed to wear, I think it's like either gray or navy for a suit. So, of course, you know, had that, had that happened in that way, you know, I think we would have all dressed accordingly in keeping with the specific rules. But, you know, in, in, under this circumstance uh, and, and the unusual world that we inhabit today, I, you know, I can't imagine that the justices at home or from what, wherever they're making their conference calls for argument are wearing their robes, at least I hope not. But either way, there are no rules that apply to what counsel wear. And I think based on the sketches that I've seen of these telephonic arguments, you know, lawyers have been wearing various things. I wore what, you know, made me feel comfortable in that moment. And I think it's also important to hopefully try to move people past uh, expectations of what an attorney is supposed to look like or dress like or what an attorney arguing before the Supreme Court is supposed to look like or dress like. And so, so you know, if, if the sketch that emerged kind of, you know, helps move that along and opens up that space a bit more and helps other folks feel like, you know, they might fit in where they otherwise thought they might not, then great. The sketch itself sort of has a funny history because I, I got an email from SCOTUS blog requesting a photo of my setup for the remote oral argument because, of course, it's only telephonic. It's not by, by Zoom or video teleconference. And so that's how the sketch came about. And that's how, you know, SCOTUS blog has been producing these sketches through their usual artist, Art Lean. They've been requesting that advocates have these photos taken and emailed to SCOTUS blog and to Art who then, you know, produces his normal sketches, which he would normally do in the courtroom for, uh, for traditional argument. Uh, the, the sort of like what I wore in addition to, you know, my exchange with Justice Gorsuch and along with really like the, 
the fact of what happened to our clients, those were the three things that resonated most with people, starting really with our clients' narratives, because I, I think that's what I've been hearing about the most from, from folks who are lawyers, lay people, you know, after the argument, people who listen to the argument. And I think that's also what's been, you know, getting pickup in the media, just sort of the outrageous nature of what was done to our clients by these agents, you know, this violation of their religious freedom, asking them to spy on their own religious community and placing them or keeping them on the no-fly list because they didn't, because they refused to do that and keeping with their religious belief. That account of what was done to them and what that cost them, the consequences for them is, I think, what stuck with a lot of people. That's what I heard about the most in the wake of the argument. And I also, you know, from the stories that I read in the press, uh, you know, I think that that was uh, reflected in many of those stories. With that, I'm going to urge people to look up the court artist sketch on SCOTUS blog from this case, uh, Tanvir versus Tansen. If you're interested in more information about the case, we've got tons of resources posted up on the web and on Twitter, including some video clips of interviews with our clients. Ramsey, thanks for being a guest on The Activist Files. Thanks for arguing this case and putting in an enormous amount of work twice to get ready for oral argument, once in the spring before the pandemic. And uh, and now here in the fall, I thought, and so did everyone else who heard it, that you did a magnificent job, as you mentioned, managed to make them all laugh, which is a, a real rarity at the court. Um, uh, and uh, and let's keep our fingers crossed um, uh, that our clients um, uh, uh, finally um, uh, finally get uh, some relief out of it that's satisfying uh, to them beyond what we've already achieved. Yeah, thank you, Shane, and, and thanks to the entire team at the Center for Constitutional Rights for your exemplary partnership on this case for all of these years. Thank you.